Welcome. Let's, uh, let's open together in prayer. Father, we commit ourselves to you this morning. We thank you for your presence with us, God. We thank you that even this morning as we gathered together to worship that you have been speaking. And I thank you that your word is not bound, God, that it, uh, it's effective. It, it cuts right to where it needs to go. And so I pray that uh, a lot of fruit would come uh, from our, into our lives and from our lives uh, as a result of what you're speaking this morning. Father, we ask that you would help us uh, see your word, God, that, that, that we wouldn't stand in judgment of you or your ways, but we would submit ourselves wholeheartedly to you this morning. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Felt prompted uh, for some time and have the opportunity to start today uh, a, a, a series on marriage. We're going to start this morning uh, looking at the issue, just this, this issue of marriage, uh, and it applies to everybody. What we're going to talk about this morning, whether you are married, aren't married, have been married, won't be married, might be married, etc., um, which is good news. So don't check out yet um, if, if you don't think it applies, because it does. And naturally, on the week that I would be gearing up to uh, preach on marriage, my wife and I had a fight, because <laughs> that's just how things go. And... Uh, <laughs> I asked her if it was okay while we were sitting in the pew. I said, would it be okay if I just mentioned to everybody that we had a fight this week? And she said, yeah, that's fine, as long as you tell them you were wrong. <clears throat> that's what I love about my wife. She's like, she's like, she gets an A plus in like the submissive wife category. And that, that even, even when she says stuff like that, I was like, I love you. I just smiled. I laughed half, half my time through worship this morning just because she said that. I think it's wonderful. I'm not entirely convinced that I was wrong yet. But nonetheless, um, in fact, it's funny because our kids, you know, we've just taken the approach that, you know, we're not going to try to present something that's not real to our children. And so sometimes they get glimpses. I mean, we don't, you know, air out our laundry before them. But, but, you know, sometimes they get little glimpses of the fact that there's tension in a relationship. And that's real. And we think it's actually healthy for them to see that because they, too, will have tension in their relationships as they grow older. And if they have no process, no, no grid by which to process that, then they might think they're really weird, and they're not. Well, um, except that they're my children, so that might be a disadvantage for them. But um, um, So they, they kind of caught wind of the fact that, you know, we were uh, going through something, arguing together, and one of my children came into the room and, and said, with a kind of an inquisic, uh, a quizzical edge, he said, what are you guys talking about? Kind of assuming something was going on. I said, we're fighting, but we're going to work through it, and we need some privacy so you can walk the other way. And then we kept going at it. And the next day, because we still were working through and are still working through this issue, um, <laughs> which, by the way, is, 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 it's just one of those things that's absurd. You know, when you actually look at what you fight about when you're married, you realize, that's dumb. Like, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. But it's just one of those things, probably a little bit of pride, um, I'm sure, on my part. Um, anyway, we, yesterday we were driving... Um, and because we were driving and there was a CD playing, the, you know, we thought the kids were not hearing us. And so we were continuing our conversation. And I heard one of them in the back say, listen, Dad, listen to the others. He said, they're still fighting. And they thought it was really entertaining. And so that's been our couple days. And uh, I actually, I was thanking the Lord this morning. I was like, God, I'm just so glad that I don't have to 
preach on marriage from any pretentious platform. Like, that's, that's just how it went this week, and, uh, and God's Word stands, right? And so that's, we're going to look at God's Word this morning, and we're going to find some encouragement from marriage, and, uh, and God will help us with our stuff. It, it's great. It's fine. We'll, we'll get through it. Actually, just a little side note. I love Focus on the Family put out some results of, a, of a, an extensive survey they did. And they actually found that the, 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 the habit or the characteristic of marriages that endured versus those that didn't was predominantly how couples ended their arguments. It's a really fascinating study. Uh, more than any other criteria at all, not how much they fought, not what they fought about, not how different they were, not how the same they were, but how they ended their conflict was actually the most telling uh, indicator in terms of how how uh, that marriage would have the ability to endure. And so I'm actually okay with you all knowing that I and my wife have conflict because we all do. It's just how you end it. It really, that matters actually more than anything. That's a little free tidbit this morning. It has nothing to do with where we're going. Um, um, this is not going to be how to have a better marriage. I'm going to come at marriage from a bit of a different angle this morning. This morning, I simply want to talk about uh, God's desire and his design for marriage uh, at the biggest level imaginable. Kind of we're going to do like a, a, a macro overview of, of what marriage is because there's, there's some glorious truths. There's some things hidden into the fabric of marriage that I think as a believer are deeply encouraging and necessary to know and, and will help give us uh, the right basis for our passion for our own marriages, whether we're in them now or hope to be married at some point. So um, marriage is essentially, at its essence, at its core, it's a covenant that we make one to another, uh, a man and a woman, um, to, to, you know, it, and, and we swear to, to be faithful to one another. And by faithful to one another, I don't mean perfect with one another. I mean committed to one another until one of us is dead. That's the, the core, the very kind of baseline covenant that we make. There's other... Uh, aspects of of that covenant, but at at its essence, what we're saying is, I will be your husband until my last breath or your last breath. You, I I will be your wife if you're a woman. I will be your wife until I'm dead. That's the essence of the covenant that we make to one another. And, and that's that, you know, in our day and age, I mean, it's no secret that, that our society has long, long, long ago discarded that, that commitment. In fact, you know, divorce, even in some arenas, it almost seems like it's encouraged. It's almost a badge. And, and, um, but clearly that, that covenant is not upheld with the same esteem that, that Jesus, that the scriptures, uh, you know, established that it should be. Um, and, and, and so it might seem this morning to you, I'm just going to just try to, uh, preempt something. It might seem that what I share this morning is a hard word to, to us because it's so countercultural, it's so uh, against the grain even within church culture. But before we get there, before I give you that kind of the, that, that hard call to remain faithful to your covenant, I want to remind us as a believing community, which is what we are, we're a church, we're a group, group of people gathered to worship Jesus, we've submitted ourselves to him, and we, we enjoy the benefits of his covenant to us, do we not? How many of you enjoy the benefit of being in covenant with God? You do. If you don't, I want to invite you to enjoy the benefits of being in covenant with God this morning. 
being in covenant with God is amazing. We, we, so much of our worship songs are oriented around just praising God that he will never leave us, that he remains faithful, that despite my wavering, that he's steady, that he's our rock, that he's our strength. All of those things come from his covenant to us. And so none of us here who belong to that family of believers would, would, would uh, disdain God's commitment to us and so, because we've, re- we've received it and we've been blessed by it and we're so grateful for it, or we should be, we might need to be reminded of that. So this morning, I remind you of the great blessing of being in covenant with God. And yet, somehow, when we make a hard call to, 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 to come in line with that same level of commitment one to another, somehow we think, oh, that's a hard word. It's not a hard word. It's a glorious word. It's a glorious challenge this morning for us to look at marriage rightly, as hard as it might seem, as, as different as it absolutely is from what we see around us, because it's intended from the beginning, marriage has always been intended by God to illustrate His covenant with us. That's where we're going this morning. God's design for marriage is that it illustrates His covenant with His people. God has always weaved the gospel into marriage and the mar- and marriage into the gospel. And it wasn't an accident. I don't think God, you know, somehow post-creation when things were, uh, you know, moving along throughout history, I don't think it occurred to him, hey, there's some connections, the gospel, the good news, my covenant, and marriage. Hey, look, it fits. Let's talk about that. He, he planned it that way. It's always been planned that way. And, and, and it may have eluded you up until this point, but... Um, but, but, but that is definitely the case. Um, so we're in, we're in covenant with God. If you, are, uh, uh, if you have put your hope fully in Jesus, if he's, if he's the one that you've submitted yourself to, if the Spirit of God through, that, through, through believing, through your faith, has entered and, and given you new life, new birth through, through his Son, then, then you're in covenant with God. You enjoy all the benefits of being in covenant with God. God God won't forsake you because God doesn't forsake his covenant. It's good news, isn't it? This morning, I want to I parallel uh, that, that same reality into our understanding of marriage, uh, that his design for marriage is, is to do this. So some aspects of that covenant, I've already mentioned that it's, it's just like all of God's covenants. He doesn't break them. Scripture is very clear that God's not a liar. Um, and so when God makes a covenant, which is just a solemn oath, it kind of takes, I promise, to a whole nother level. Um, when God makes a covenant, he never breaks it. This covenant that we enjoy is the covenant in Jesus' blood. It's referred to in Jeremiah 31 as the new covenant in his blood, um, which is you know, building on uh, a, a series of other covenants that God had made with, with various patriarchs of the faith, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. God has made covenants uh, with, with man throughout history, for us to, to, to draw back our, our strength of, uh, of knowing who he is. And so he's made a, a new covenant in his blood through Jesus, his shed blood, through Jesus paying for, for, for our sin, uh, through purchasing us to God as we sang this morning, that we have now, the, the, the payment for that covenant has been established. Blood was always shed to establish a covenant. Good news is this morning, your blood doesn't have to be shed for you to share in that covenant. Jesus' blood was shed on your behalf so that you can share in that covenant. And, and it's a covenant uh, in which sin is forgiven. That's really good news. Just 
drawing this baseline of, of our understanding of, of this covenant that we're in. Um, our sin is forgiven. It really is. It's paid for in full. We don't even have to feel bad about it anymore. We don't have to wallow in it for a week every time we do it. It's, your, your sin's paid for if you're in covenant with God. It's really, really good news. And, and, and receiving that, really receiving that, will enable you to actually carry out your covenant vows to your husband or your wife as well. So um, in case you're wondering why I, I keep resting on, on some of these points, um, this covenant that we have is, is a covenant in which there's great intimacy and fellowship with God. There's a lot of parallels, uh, like I said, between marriage and, and the, the marriage covenant and this covenant. Um, Throughout the Old Testament, uh, God refers to Israel, his beloved, as, as, as his bride. And he refers to himself as the husband to Israel. There's a few passages. Let me share them with you. And, and these are only a few, but Isaiah 54, verse 5. It says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. So God refers to himself as husband in his relationship to his people, to Israel. Jeremiah 31, 32, which I had alluded to earlier, says that, um, the, that the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. God's appealing to Israel saying, I treated you as my bride, as my beloved, as the one that I loved. I cherished you. You broke covenant, but I've made a covenant with you. I'm your husband. And in Revelation 21, we see the future reality of this relationship come into full fruition. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is full of God's people, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And so, so God has intentionally weaved into his relationship with Israel this, this parallel with how we relate to one another, husband to wife. In fact, he intended for the husband-wife relationship to, 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 to do many things in our lives, obviously. Some are very obvious. But, but one thing that might elude us at times is that the marriage covenant was part, in, in large part, God's design to illustrate his desire to relate to his people all the time. And so whatever society you, you live in at whatever point in history you lived, there's married people. And those married people are supposed to testify to the gospel through their marriage covenant. It's supposed to illustrate that. There's supposed to be a parallel, a, a parable in that. Um, when I officiate weddings, and uh, in the summertime, it seems like that's what I do every other weekend. Uh, just because if you hang around a, a bunch of students who are studying for ministry and missions and such, like we do here around Bethany, it just seems inevitable that you'll be officiating many weddings if you're ordained to do so. And so that's kind of a practice of mine in the summer. In fact, Many of you here this morning, I probably officiated your weddings. <laughs> raise, you don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> but anyone that's ever had uh, me officiate a wedding, I read a statement at the beginning of that ceremony, and perhaps the pastor who you know, oversaw your wedding read the same or a similar one. And I'll just read it to you because I really like what it says. I should know it by heart, but just in case I have it. In my notes, it says, Marriage is an honorable estate instituted by God in the time of creation for the well-being of mankind. It is safeguarded by the laws of Moses, affirmed by the words of the prophets, and hallowed by the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage is a union, close and enduring, a relationship in which a man and a woman forsake all others to become one flesh. 
This abiding union illustrates the holy relationship between Christ and his church. This abiding union, marriage, illustrates the holy relationship between Christ and his church. Marriage is therefore not to be entered into lightly, but reverently, soberly, and in the fear of God. Some of you are expecting a girl in a white dress to walk down the aisle right now. Not going to happen. Um, some of you ladies are wishing that was you walking down the aisle in a white dress. Someday it may come. Um, I read those words and they, they're full of meaning. They're full of, of truth. They're full of revelation, not only of marriage, but again of the gospel, the, the good covenant that we are in with God. This abiding union is intended to illustrate the holy relationship between Christ and his church. We won't have time to exhaust this this morning. If you read the scriptures, you'll see how prevalent this, this illustration is. But we'll touch on a few points. Before we do that, though, it's always just a great practice to look at what Jesus thought of a particular issue. And Jesus did not ignore the issue of marriage. Jesus addressed the issue of marriage. And in fact, I believe Jesus had the highest view of marriage that any man has ever had. Jesus had, because he had an accurate view of marriage. He had, and he was a man. Jesus had the highest view of marriage that anybody has ever had. I really believe that. And I think it's demonstrated well in the passage that we'll read together. So Matthew 19, if you want to flip over and look at it, Jesus' disciples come and ask him a question. Starting in verse 1, it said, Jesus, when he had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, sorry, it wasn't the disciples, it was the Pharisees, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So that's the question, the Pharisees. And of course, the Pharisees' hearts are wicked. They're just trying to get Jesus to say something wrong, and he never does. They're slow learners. Being a Pharisee stinks. You just always end up on the wrong equation of of your tricky, conniving uh, questions, it seems. Um, Is it lawful for a man to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And they said to him, because they already knew that Jesus was going to answer that way, right? That's why they were asking the question. Jesus said to them, or they said to him, why then did Moses command one be given a certificate of divorce to send her away? They're saying, hey, there's a contradiction here, Jesus. You're opposing Moses because Moses said it was okay. Kind of. In their minds, that's what they think. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And Jesus is making a hardcore appeal to them saying, it should not, still not be so. If you weren't so stubborn and hard-hearted, we would never have had to have this conversation. But you were, so we did. But since you asked... No, it's not lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. And I say to you, so he goes on, Jesus always goes on. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, listen to what they said. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better to not marry. That's a really interesting response from the disciples. 
Because, you know, this was the Pharisees asking Jesus the questions, but clearly the, the, the disciples were in earshot. They were part of the conversation. They were tuning in closely, kind of taking notes for next time they got quizzed by Pharisees. Jesus, I remember he said something about that. Uh, Jesus gives them the answer to marriage. He gives them his view of marriage, and the disciples respond by saying, wow, maybe it's just better not to get married. That's a sobering response. You know what that tells me? If you're listening to a guy teach about marriage, and you just think, man, marriage, woo, marriage. He's not teaching very good. Because that's not what happened when Jesus taught about marriage. When Jesus taught about marriage, they were like, oh, really? Hey, it's just better. Can we not talk about that anymore? That's rough, Jesus. That's hardcore stuff. Because you're saying, Jesus, I think what I hear you saying, you know, it's, it's what good, good listeners do. I, you, I hear you saying that if I get married, I'm supposed to adhere my... I'm supposed to adapt my approach to marriage to the way marriage was, not from Moses and the hard hearts of the Israelites, but I'm supposed to subject myself to this ideal of marriage from the beginning? See, that's totally different. That's, that's a different conversation, Jesus. And if I'm supposed to do that, that's serious stuff. So that statement that I read, that I read at the beginning of all of your wedding ceremonies, marriage is to be entered into soberly. That's what Jesus establishes here. That's serious sobriety. Whoa! It's supposed to be like it was at the beginning. That means I'm in it till I'm dead. Yeah. You know why? Because Jesus was in it till he was dead. And it's supposed to parallel. There's supposed to be a common thread in how we see God's covenant to us and how we express covenant to one another in marriage. There's supposed to be a lot of similarities. It's supposed to be a parallel. It goes on in this passage. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but the only those to whom it is given. What saying? The saying that maybe it's better not to get married. Not the saying that you can get divorced. He's saying, um, some people can receive what you just got. Which is, hey, because that's so serious, I'm just not going there. And he says, he goes on. He says, uh, there, there are, there's a degree of humor to this, pardon my chuckling. Um, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, which is unfortunate, but that's the reality they were born with. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That's even more unfortunate because it seems like they didn't even get to sign up for it. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that's really noble because they obviously saw the sobriety of this situation and said, I'm going to avoid that. If you're wondering what a eunuch is, um, that's an emasculated man. And if you don't know what that is, you can ask your mother at home. <laughs> and if you are the mother at home, I don't know who you're going to ask. But, um, you know, eunuchs in the day, obviously there's some cultural realities to what Jesus is talking about. It's not a real common status in, in our society. But eunuchs, they were men who were emasculated, they, therefore they had no sexual desire. And throughout the scriptures, even I've been reading through, uh, through Esther, it's interesting when, when King Xerxes in, in Persia in, in the book of Esther was looking for a new bride because his previous one didn't quite cut it. Uh, and he brought in a whole slew of young women to be groomed and to be 
viewed. It was kind of like the, a scene from The Bachelor or something. Um, uh, it says that they were given, the, the eunuchs were given charge of these beautiful women to do their treatments so that they could be presented to the king to be selected for their, as, as a bride. And so you got to know that these guys aren't going to be messing around with all of these beautiful women as they're being prepared. And so that was eunuchs' jobs because they didn't have any desire to be married because their, their sexual drive was eliminated through that process. And, um, and so Jesus is saying, you know, some people are born that way. Some people have been made that way. Again, that's just not a common practice for us. Thank God. And some have chosen for the sake of the kingdom of God to be that way. And so perhaps the parallel for us is, is just a, a vow for, for somebody who's single that says, you know what, because of this understanding of marriage, this very, very high view of marriage that causes great sobriety and, and trembling even in my heart, uh, you know, that might be part of the motivation, but also because of 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul goes on to say that, Uh, By not being married, you can be fully devoted to the work of the kingdom and not have your interests divided because if you're married, you're very well aware that your interests are divided. Is that right? You should know this. If you're married, your interests are divided, and that's okay. There's no scriptural uh, command to not be married, nor is it a compromise to be married. But Jesus is saying, if you can receive this, you you can make the choice as a single man or woman for the sake of the kingdom of God, to devote yourself to his work exclusively and not have to give yourself to the strenuous work of, of, of fostering a marriage and a family. And that's a legitimate expression of worship and service to God. He's saying that. And if, if you can't accept that and you're thinking, that's crazy, then he hasn't given that to you. It's okay. You, just don't, you don't have to think about it. If that sounds appealing to you, you know, that might be what, what, what the Lord has for you. Um, but it's interesting to me that Jesus strikes such a high, high view of marriage that it causes that response in their hearts. And, and, and if you compare that to the, to the view of marriage that we as a society have, I mean, you, it's, you can't even have the conversation. Like, we don't have that view of marriage. We don't, it doesn't strike sobriety in our heart when we talk about marriage. It's so casual. It's so flippant. In fact, uh, you know, the, the breaking of the marriage covenant is lauded on, you know, in, in the media with celebrities. I don't know, not that I have any interest in that. You just can't avoid it sometimes. It's just everywhere. And sadly, I think in the church, we, we, we don't hold the same high view of marriage that Jesus had. I'm sure a part of that is just the influence of our society. I'm sure a part of that is just the influence of our own carnal nature that still tries to fight for it, its own pleasure, illegitimate pleasure. Um, but but I, don't, I don't know that any society at any point in history has ever had a high enough view of marriage. I think Jesus just iced the cake right there. I don't think you can have a higher view of marriage than that. And you know why it's great to have a high view of marriage? Because if you can have a high view of marriage, you can have a high view of the gospel. Because they're paralleled. There's a relationship between the two. As we lower our view of marriage and, and kind of take a casual approach to marriage, you know, divorce, blah, whatever, guess what happens? The parallel plays in, comes into play as well. Our view of the gospel lowers. Why? Because here's an example just from, from real life experience for myself and for many of you. You grow up in homes where covenant is supposed to establish security for you. And when covenant is broken, security is broken. And then somebody tells you God is a husband. What if your husband beat you? 
Well, then what kind of a husband is God? So as marriage deteriorates in all of the ways that it does, what does that do to the people who are told that God is a father, that God is a husband, that they don't want to have anything to do with him? Because God intended for a covenant relationship between man and woman to be the security by which children are nurtured and grown up. So when they hear that God is father, that God is husband, that that provokes a proper response in them and that it's a positive response in them. So myself, just growing up in a broken home where covenant was broken and dealing with all of the the mess that comes with that, it takes time to renew your mind and, and, and think rightly about the gospel even because I don't get it anymore. I was supposed to have had that security and I didn't. And it produced all kinds of havoc for a decade in my life. And now I'm trying to resort that out. And that's just not the way God intended for it to be. So there, there's a, there is a parallel. But let me, let me pull, a, a, look, pull up another passage this morning that I think will make it even more clear, this parallel. Look at Ephesians 5. You're likely familiar with it. Ephesians 5 is probably one of the most commonly referred to New Testament passages regarding teaching on marriage. But here's what I want you to do. I, I, I want you to suspend as we read until we get near the end this the, the, the temptation to just take this as practical counsel for marriage. It is. It's just not primarily practical counsel for marriage. I'm all about practical counsel for marriage. Again, go to Pastor Jared's class. You're going to get oodles of it. It'll be wonderful. Um, and, 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 and this is practical. And we might even, on a Sunday morning, get to some of the practical aspects of what Paul is saying here. But keep reading. Just hold that temptation to go there because that's not primarily where Paul is going. 22 of verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, are you catching it? Do you see it? The parallel. As the church, what do you... See, if this was just purely practical advice for marriage, which would be totally valid, he wouldn't be talking about the church right now. He would just be talking about what he just talked about. He wouldn't have said what he said in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Why? Because God wants there to be a parallel there. That's what, that's what God designed the wife-husband relationship to be like. God willing, we'll have more time in the next few weeks to cover that a little bit more. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Are you seeing it again? Here it is. He's drawing on on the basis of this parable, which is God's covenant to his church. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Isn't that true? Verse 29. Somebody said to me, happy wife, happy life. That's just a little translation of uh, what we just read there. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Again, are you seeing the parallel? It's constant. He's constantly referring back to how God relates to his church to help husbands know how to relate to their wives, to help wives know how to relate to their husbands. 
because we are members of one body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This is the clincher. This is where it all comes together. This mystery is profound. See, if you just read this the way that we usually read it, husbands, submit, uh, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, this, that, you think, all right, that's hard to do, but I wouldn't call it mysterious or profound. I would just call it hard, difficult, challenging, a real sober call to love, to serve, to submit, etc. But that's not how Paul sums it up. He says this pro- mystery is profound. So clearly, he's not just saying some good, practical, helpful things to enhance your marriage. He's saying, weaved in, in, in the fabric of what I'm talking about is something profoundly mysterious and wonderful. And I don't want you to miss it. He goes on. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And he goes on. However, let each of you also love his wife as he loves himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I think what Paul's saying is, hey, don't get me wrong. Everything I said was also true. It's good. You should apply those things in your home and in your marriage. Don't, yeah, like, but that's just not really what I'm talking about. What I really, what's in my heart, I think Paul is saying is this. It's the profound mystery. I want you to see the gospel when you see marriage, church. I think that's what Paul's saying. I think that's what's motivating him. And, he, and then he's like, oh yeah, but don't forget. Yeah, do that too. That's good. So there's a parable in marriage. It's a parable of the gospel. And we're grateful, as I started out this morning, we're grateful to have received the blessings of of the covenant that we have with God. And then when we're in marriage, if we've entered it, maybe you didn't enter marriage soberly like we talked about entering marriage, you're in it now. So now it's a great time to just sober up and say, hey, I don't have any options, and that's okay, that's good. Maybe you did enter it into marriage. Enter into it soberly, and, but now you realize you had no idea what soberly meant because now it's really sober for you. You're still in it, and it's still time to be sober about it. And it's still time to, to uphold your end of being in a covenant. And because you've entered that covenant, you're in the covenant. If you're in this room this morning and you're single, I would encourage you to consider marriage as a sober thing. Is it fun? Is it glorious? Does it have benefits? It does. It does. It does. Is it difficult? It's tremendously difficult. Is it going to push you to the limit? You have no idea what your limit is. You don't even know. Should you, should you do it? Should you enter marriage anyway? Sure. Under certain circumstances? Absolutely you can do that. Should you do it with your eyes wide open? Again, they've never been open before really, but yes, as best you can. And when you're in it, and then it, it gets hard, what should you do? You should just be thankful and say, okay, now I get to demonstrate covenant. Now I get to put on display what God did for me. Now I get to witness through my marriage, as difficult as it might be right now, and as much as I realize I didn't know what I was getting into, I'm in it, and I'm going to testify to the, to the faithfulness of God by remaining faithful in my marriage. Because I'm in a covenant. So I don't know how you got into it, but you can't get out. <laughs> There's no, if you want a legitimate death, uh, if you want a, I just spoiled my joke. If you want a legitimate divorce certificate, you need a death certificate. That's the only legitimate divorce certificate there is. I don't care what the U.S. government or the state of Minnesota tells you about marriage. There's no legitimate 
Statement of divorce except a death certificate. Maybe again we'll get to explain that a little more in detail in future weeks. Don't have time this morning. But you have received freely from this covenant of grace that God has given you. You're in a covenant or you're thinking about entering a covenant or you hope that one day that you will enter a covenant of marriage and that is your opportunity to put on display the faithfulness of God. Maybe you struggle with the idea of being an evangelist or declaring the gospel. Declare it that way. Be faithful till you're dead. It's a great witness. It's a great testimony. You know, there's so many things that can enter our mind that would give us what we think to be legitimate outs or even semi-legitimate outs, and I just want to say none of them count this morning. You know, we fell out, I'm I'm not in love anymore. I don't care. Neither does God, frankly. (laughs) Just to speak on his behalf for a moment this morning. It doesn't matter if you think you're in love. You're in a covenant. Do you want God to step out of covenant with you because he's not in love with you anymore? Then stay in yours. Are you grateful to have received the faithfulness of God? Then be faithful to the wife of your youth. Look with me in Malachi. Verse 2. God's a little peeved when he's addressing his people in Malachi 2. They're saying to him, hey God, you don't listen to me anymore. You don't do what we ask. We don't even, are you still there God? They're crying out. And this is what God says starting in verse 13 in Malachi 2. He says, this second thing you do, there's more. You can read it before if you want. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, you've been faithless to her. Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Question mark. Godly offspring. He wanted you to raise a family. He wanted children to know the covenant blessing of God through your marriage. And you've been unfaithful to the wife of your youth, so your children are robbed of that. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, Says the Lord, the God of Israel, uh, but divorces her. Pause there. Read that again. The man who does not love his wife, but divorces her. Divorce is the antithesis of love. You hear people say, we just, you know, we still love each other, but we just can't make it work. Garbage. That's contradictory. Divorce is hate. Stay together. Be miserable. Doesn't matter. Miserable marriage is better than happy divorce. Do you hear that? Why? Because it's an aberration of the covenant that you made one to another and it, and, and it speaks, it, 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 it casts a poor light on the gospel. God's a little upset when he addresses his people this way who are doing this and they're saying, you won't listen to us, God. Keep reading. Says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. This is the man who divorces his wife, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words. 
See, I think sometimes we get into this mentality that God just wants us to say the right things. I was in a group some time ago or observing a group and I heard the leader just really exhorting the people who were singing the songs that they were singing that there's nothing more that God wants than for you to sing these songs to him right now. And I couldn't disagree with him more. He wants you to be faithful to the wife of your youth. And if you want to sing to him, whatever you want to sing to him, when you're unfaithful to the wife of your youth, he doesn't care and it makes him mad. God doesn't like your words when your heart doesn't belong to him. And when your heart is strayed from the wife of your youth, from the one with whom you've made covenant with, then you're not loving him. And your heart's not right and you need to repent and you can repent. And then you can sing him all kinds of glorious words and he'll love it. But it's not the ultimate thing that he wants. Noise bothers God. He's not big on noise. Doesn't matter how many people are in the same room making noise. Evangelicals, we love noise. We love big rooms. We think God's happy when lots of people are together making lots of noise. God doesn't care about noise. He cares about people being faithful to him as expressed per our sermon this morning in being faithful to the wife that you married or the husband that you married. You can just take all of everything else that you think has any religious worth whatsoever and throw it away if your heart has moved from the, heart, from the wife of your youth. Re-up your commitment to be in covenant with her because you're in covenant with her and it can't be broken until you're dead or she's dead. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. You've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is this God of justice? I was reminded of this recently. I read an article in a very popular Christian publication and it grieved me. I'll share just the essence of it with you. There was a prominent Christian leader, probably not prominent enough that most of us are aware of him, but I'd heard of him, and which is probably why I read the article. He was the, the president of a, of, a, of a seminary. And the article was about the fact that he was observed with a woman who was not his wife in a, in a situation that sure looked compromising. He def- denied that it was a compromised situation. Um, and and the, the entire emphasis of the article was that it was illegitimate for him to be, and, and he actually introduced this woman as his fiance, as one, the one with whom he was engaged. And the entire article put the emphasis on the fact that his engagement to this woman was illegitimate because he was still legally married to his first wife, though they had not lived together and they'd been separated for two years. That was the entire essence of the article in a respectable, mainline, evangelical publication. No word of the fact that he was still married to his wife. The entire emphasis, I could read it for you. I have it here. I just don't want to accidentally say his name. Uh, (laughs) You can look it up for yourself. The entire emphasis was that his engagement was illegitimate because he was still legally married to his first wife. And I would say that if you read the Bible and have a right view of marriage, you would say to that man, you are in covenant with the wife of your youth. You better get back to her. And it's the church's job to call people back to that. Right? That's why we're a church. That's why we encourage one another daily so that when we veer from our commitment to the wife of our youth, somebody says, no, that's your wife. And you live close to me. And I can make your life miserable if you're not faithful to her. And it's my job. And so when I'm an idiot next week, you need to do the same thing to me. Because I am an idiot. I know it. 
We have to have enough humility to realize that we can all be in the same shoes of the people that we're talking about very quickly, right? We need each other to do that. That's called spurring each other on. That's what Hebrews calls it. It's a spur. I don't know if you're, any of you have ever seen a cowboy boot, but a spur is not a pleasant thing to have engaged into your flesh. But that's what they're for. They're to make you run the right way. That's what we're for. We're supposed to help each other run the right way. So when, when your heart gets cold and you're in fellowship with one another, somebody's going to notice that, and hopefully it can come off gently, because usually gentle is more than enough. Because, you know, you realize, oh my goodness, I am being an idiot. And then you go the right way because you get spurred. <clears throat> it hurts. That's what we're supposed to do. I pray, pray to God this morning that I spur some of us to just re-up our commitment to the covenant. Not re-up the covenant. The covenant's established. Can't change it. And you might think, that's hard. That's hard. Why are you saying such a hard thing to us? It's not hard. It's glorious. Why? Because God's never going to change his covenant to you. And the two are supposed to parallel each other. This is supposed to illustrate that. So if you, want, if you want the goodies of God's covenant, but you don't want to be faithful to your own, maybe you really don't want God's. Maybe your heart's that cold. And again, this morning, if that's the case, I would encourage you to repent. Because it can change in an instant. God can change that heart. You might think, we've grown apart. Grow together. Take some initiative on that. Just humble yourself. Stop pointing out her flaws. And just start loving. Start growing together. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. I know that sounds really cold. Maybe it is. Some of the essence of the fight that I had with my wife this week was over the fact that I come off as a little cold sometimes. So it could very well be. It's still true. Pastor Jared can smooth it over someday when you talk to him. He's good at much better at that than I am. You know, there really is no out. You're not happy. You're in a covenant. It's hard to get along with. I'm sure you're no peach either. And even if you are, you're in a covenant. They're not Christians. You know, this, this is a, a fair question that people ask. You know, I'm married to somebody who's not a Christian. If you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul appeals to the believer, and in Peter as well. Peter appeals to any believer who is in a, in a covenant relationship with one who's not a Christian. As long as it's in your power, you do everything that you can possibly do to preserve that marriage and make it last. And perhaps at their dying day, through your submissive heart, through the way that you won them over, not with word, not with sermons from the kitchen table, screaming, pointing your finger, but through service like Jesus does, all your life. What a noble calling if you find yourself in a situation where, for whatever reason, I'm not saying sign up for it. I'm saying if you find yourself, for whatever reason, in a, in a marriage covenant with somebody who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a lifelong mission established for you. Take that as God's, as God's gift, as God's call in your life. Is it glorious? No. doesn't matter. He'll reward you rightly and appropriately for that. And you can expect that. Being married to somebody who's not a Christian is not an out. Of course, it's a, it's a two-party dance, isn't it? And so sometimes you just don't have control over this. I'm not talking about the other person right now. Hopefully they're listening too. If they're not, you could you know, slide them the CD under their pillow or something. Um, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. You know, if, if individually we could just re-up 
our, our view of marriage to that of somewhere near where Jesus' view of marriage was. And we can re-up our commitment to remain faithful to the covenant that we entered into. I just think there's all kinds of hope for your marriage regardless of where it's at. Um, let me even go one step further in this. Jesus said in that Matthew 19 passage that he, he creates one exception for, for divorce, right? You probably noticed it. You probably read it before. He said except for marital un- sexual unfaithfulness. Let me just point out, it doesn't say that if somebody's sexually unfaithful that you have to divorce. And I think the whole teaching of Scripture would point to quite the opposite. Uh, God help, you know, God help us all if we're in that situation. And I've interacted with many, many men who've been in that situation. Some on the side of the unfaithfulness and some on the side of been che- being, having been cheated on. So I felt, you know, secondhand the pain of that to a degree. Um, but that's not your out. As I read the New Testament... And I know this is controversial, it's debated, but I'll just tell you my, my interpretation. Because I'm the interim pastor. That's a glorious thing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, as I read the Bible, Jesus makes that one provision one time, fine. This is, what I've, <laughs> this is my view. You can take your out if you want it, but then you're a widow, essentially, for the rest of your life, or a widower. He never creates a clear provision for remarriage. In fact, he says that if you remarry one, then you're an adulterer or an adulteress. I realize there's implications to that teaching. Maybe we can talk about it another day. If you have lots of questions, Pastor Jared is in the back. Um, I'd be happy to talk to you about it, and I'm not trying to pin anybody down here and make you feel bad. And I think, I think anybody, regardless of your past re- re- with marriage can fully engage in a, in a relationship with Jesus. And every situation is super unique because every time I talk about this, somebody comes to me with a really unique situation I've never thought of before. And so I'm not trying to even necessarily make a blanket application for every single person in this room who's been divorced or is divorced. I'm just saying this is the way it should be and this is the way it should be viewed. Like really, let, me, let my appeal be this on the issue of marriage. Don't, don't let your own... Um, let me start with this. I'm not judging it. There's no judgment to anybody who's been divorced. So if you can believe that as sincere from me, then let me take it one step further and say um, that, that just because your situation doesn't fit God's ideal for marriage doesn't mean that you need to cop an attitude and walk away and say that church is super judgmental or whatever. All I'm trying to do this morning is lay a groundwork for how we understand marriage. And just like anything, when, when we're submitted to something, we can, we can even make a conclusion like, I know this is really radical, like, I was wrong. I know that's like a radical conclusion to actually say I was wrong at some point in my life. You were wrong. Maybe there is nothing you can do about it anymore. Here's the one thing you can do. You can say I was wrong instead of trying to justify it and say it's okay. Like, can we... Let me appeal to you that, that we can be mature enough that regardless of what our spotted past looks like, that we can be humble enough to say, well, God, if that's your view of marriage, even though my track record is really, really off, I'm still going to accept that. 
And I would appeal to you as a, as a brother or a sister in the Lord that you have to accept that because, well, not only because it's God's word, but because it, it, it's so intentionally supposed to illustrate the gospel. And if you breach it, if there's all kinds of provisions out of covenant, then what kind of security do you have in God's covenant? Very little. I know I'm not addressing all of your specific situations, and I know I'm provoking a lot of them to the surface. But I am appealing to you even in the midst of that. Would we submit ourselves to God and say, this is right? And would we look at our situation and say, is there anything that I can do? Is it within my power today in any way to re-up my commitment to the covenant of my youth in marriage? Uh, I just heard a great story recently from, from somebody. Her parents didn't know the Lord. They got married. They had a few children, and then they got divorced, and the mom got remarried and had a couple children, or sorry, she got into a relationship with another man, had a couple children, and then something happened where her first husband kind of reconnected with her somehow, and she hadn't married the second man, even though she had kids with him, and they got married again and had more kids, and the girl I was talking to was one of the children in the middle of all of that. And I've just never heard such a fascinating story. And yet my heart, despite the pain of all of that, and certainly doesn't have to be that way. I love that as this part of the story was that both of them had come to know the Lord during that process. That's an important detail. And in their situation, with a newfound fear of the Lord and desire to honor him and do right, they expressed their commitment to their covenant marriage by remarrying. And to this day, they remain that way and have raised a family that is rather unique. And yet, isn't that glorious? It's a beautiful thing. If you have anything within your power to do, to reconcile to, to your spouse, you should. And if there's not, besides them having passed away, then you should passionately and fervently pray for them to be reconciled to you. Because that's the kind of covenant God has made with us. And that's the kind of covenant that we are to, to, to express when we're married. Um, we'll just end there this morning. Much, much more that could be said. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask this morning that more than a talk on marriage, God, we would see your faithfulness. God, we want to we wanna know you rightly and we want to respond rightly to the marvelous thing that you did when you bought us and you brought us into covenant and you, and, and you swore, God, that you would remain faithful. So, Father, we, we, um, we just worship you this morning. We thank you for that. God, I thank you that your intention and your desire is that through the institution of marriage that we're, we can be reminded of that repeatedly. God, all through every society, you've intended for that to, to point to this good 
reality. And Lord, I, I want to pray, God, for, for this church specifically. And I want to ask, Lord, that you would intervene in any marriage that needs intervention. God, even if it just needs a, a pick-me-up, just a lift, just a little encouragement, if it's just maybe neutral, Lord, I pray, God, that you would intervene, that you would step in. God, that this, this commitment to the covenant that we made would be renewed not, not out of human zeal, but out of response to knowing how faithful you have been. And you will be. God, I pray for marriages that are right near the end. On the brink. God, I'm asking that you would intervene. Father, would you pull them together, God? God, would you, just on the basis of, of revelation of your covenant love, God, would you call husbands back to love their wives? Lord, I pray where infidelity has ravaged marriages, God, I ask that you would bring forgiveness and you would bring joy and restoration and reconciliation just like you've brought in your covenant with us. Lord, where hearts are hard and cold to one another, Lord, I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would allow us to love again. In Jesus' name.